0: Being a bottled-in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: The Self-Helpful Podcast is brought to you by Ziegler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziegler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me as I talk with today's most important influencers, guides, and changemakers to uncover what truly drives them and extract the big takeaway from their personal journey and their greatest wisdom. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and this is Self Helpful. In this episode, we begin a series on emotional power. Uh, Every day, life happens around us, and we judge it all by how we feel about it, and we naturally trust and believe our experience. My guest today, however, says it's our emotions that are the final judge of all our experiences. Not fact, not our logic, but our emotions. And to take it further, she cites, the very meaning in your life is determined by the emotions you have about it. And what you're about to learn is you have perceptions and resulting patterns programmed into your mind that are influencing how you perceive life overall, good and bad. And of course, it's the bad patterns that are sabotaging you and me. And that's our focus today, as we can correct those patterns. So my expert guest on the topic is Dr. Julia deganji. Dr. DeGangi is a neuropsychologist who completed her residency at Harvard Medical School Boston University School of Medicine and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. And she's author of a new book. Those of you watching the video, it's right behind me over my shoulder. The book's called Energy Rising, the Neuroscience of Leading with emotional power. Dr. deganji has nearly two decades of experience studying the connection between our brains and our behavior and has worked with leaders around the world, including the White House Press Office and the US Special Forces. Dr. deganji shows people at work and at home how to harness the power of the brain to lead more satisfying and emotionally intelligent lives. I mean, we live in a world where science and emotions are viewed as radically disparate things, and she's going to dispel some of that for us. Uh, Juliet, thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh my goodness, Kevin. Thanks for having me. That was a a wonderful introduction, Um, and I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, I, you know, I want to start off. I mean, the title or the subtitle, or the tagline of the book, you know, the neuroscience of leading with emotional power. And one of the things that got my interest right off the bat is, you know, we talk about leading and it's always a, the first thought is leading other people out here. And your focus is ultimately how we lead ourselves and. As you know, we often miss that. And how can we go out there and lead others if we haven't learned to lead ourselves? And that's what I see really as the undergirding undergirding preface or pillar foundation of the whole book.
1: I think that you nailed it. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times what we want to do is we're very interested in other people's behavior. Right. We're interested in their behavior because we care about them. We're interested in their behavior because their behavior has a lot to do with how easy or hard our lives are. But we really you know, I always say that it sort of fascinates me that we pay more attention to figuring out how to work chat GPT Mm -hmm. or our own cell phones. than we pay attention to the powerful operation of our own brains and our own nervous systems. So if you understand how emotions and behavior actually really works, you really start to see that the only way to really lead others in a meaningful, sustainable way is to first lead ourselves. Yeah. And I think when a lot of people use this term leader, right, you think about like, okay, am I, you know, I'm not like leading a 40,000 person company. But what I mean here is like whether we think we're a good leader or a bad leader, the overwhelming truth is that the central leader in our own lives is us. And so our leadership, if you really want to think in neuroscientific terms, believe it or not, leadership has less to do with what you're doing between the hours of nine to five or what you're doing after work with your kids. Leadership has to do with the energy of who you are being.
0: That, Julia, is really my interest. I had on Lynn Twist, just renowned humanitarian Lynn Twist. And she talked about, she made this quip during the show about how our mood precedes us so much. And I said, mood, that's interesting. Cause I always think about, you know, like your attitude, but she says, no, I think it's different, your mood. And as I was reading your book, uh, just the, even the idea of, I so focus on my words, right? I think I, I'm really focused on what I'm going to say. I mean, I'm on you know, my podcast. I was, come on, you know, I'm on my words, but even with my family and my friends. And yet, as you talk about, it's my energy that we all, we all feel it. You walk in the room, you know, and your mood or whatever, your energy, that's what precedes everything. It made me even think about like a dog and whether you call it by its name or not, it doesn't matter. It's listening to the, Hey, whatever you can call it, whatever you want. Uh, Hey, Hey, bookshelf, come here, bookshelf. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's listening to that. And I think, well, I'm the same way, man. I don't care what you say. I feel that energy. And yet we have no teaching anywhere. You know, that traditional school, nothing teaches us to pay attention to the energy that we're actually Putting off, We can learn the words, you know, I read how to win friends and influence people. It's awesome. Still doesn't hit. Yeah, but whatever the energy is, that's what's influencing people most. And if I'm going to change that, I got to go inside. I, I don't really want to hear that message, but you're making it loud and clear that I've got to. I mean, this is the, and I appreciate your perspective. This is the science of it. This isn't just an opinion. You've done the work.
1: Well, I think that you said that all very elegantly. And like my brain is going, I call it synapsing. It's totally a not technical term. But when you were talking, my brain was going in a million different directions. Mm -hmm. So first of all, let me say that neuroscience shows us that emotion is a thing of contagion. Uh. So we catch each other's emotions the way we catch colds. And you don't need me to go over the neuroscientific research because you just nailed it a million times. You have been in a great mood and you have walked into a room where like, the energy was just off and you felt your mood sink like a lead balloon. Yeah. The converse of that is true too. My favorite one is like, have you ever like walked into a conversation where like people are like cracking up hysterically, you don't even know what they're laughing about. And then you just like start laughing hysterically. Mm, mm -hmm. So we really do. I mean, if you understand, you know, human beings, we are, are wired for each other. The neuroscience of attachment shows us this we catch each other's emotions. And, you know, I do a lot of work with leadership. So sometimes that's leadership at work and sometimes that's leadership at home. And a lot of times people will say things like, you know, I'll just pull one, like people will say things like clarity is kind. And I always say, I don't know, is it? Tell me the energy in which you said the clear thing. If you said the clear thing and in your heart was really frustration, irritation, you were just kind of like through gritted teeth. It does not matter how flawless your execution is. People are going to receive that. Why are they going to receive that? Because the native universal and first language of every human being on the planet is a language of emotion. Yeah. Right? We all came onto this planet understanding inherently emotion. So I think sort of the if there's one thing that adulthood has screwed us up with, it's trying to sever us from the truth of our experience and the truth of our neurology is that we run on the energy of emotion.
0: yeah you you talk about I mean, from a, again, a, a scientific medical, whatever you talk about an uh, fMRI, functional, MRI, hopefully people Uh know uh, what that is. And you in essence could look, I mean, so you hook me up to that, you hook somebody else up to that and you can watch our reactions, right? So you're going to propose a, put an image in front of us, make a statement in front of us, say a word in front of us, and you're going to see how that resonates. I mean, I, I almost wish that I had that well, I don't know. It'd be embarrassing. I had that above me, you know, and, and you did too. And so we're talking and realize, gosh, I just said something that's totally benign to me. And you just, you just, you know, went off the scale on something that obviously meant something to you. You have some kind of emotion behind that and we need to pay attention to that. That's something that we don't know. And the hard part is I have not known that about myself, Julia. I mean, that's been, you know, mine has been an external an outward focus of my behavior and maybe controlling that, but not being aware of the feelings behind that. So very emotionally unintelligent. My audience knows that we've been talking about this and realizing how that sabotaged me. Kind of like what I said in the intro, that's my fear. If I don't know what's going on inside, then I allow those back to your patterns aspect. I allow that to sabotage me. That feels like that's the fear or not the fear. That's the concern behind it. But then I think what you're showing us in the book is that's also the hope that I can change that if I do the work. Yes.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I I tend to take a very generous attitude, not just because, you know, I think when you're you become a, a neuropsychologist, you and I sort of specialize in stress and trauma. I'm certainly called because I'm a very empathic person, but also I'm a very pragmatic person. It's the scientist in me. And I think a lot of us. So let me sort of back up here and say, in order to live a powerful life and by powerful, I do not mean all these external measures of success. Right. right? What I mean is like, does my life feel good to me? Am I confident? Do I feel resilient? Do I feel connected? Do I feel creative? Okay. so I think the simplest way to define this is really to look at the brain. So your brain has three engines that are really driving you through your life, okay? You have an engine of behavior, you have an engine that thinks, and you have an engine that feels. Like there's a sort of three neurobiological forms of energy that move you through life. Now, I don't know the first damn thing about engineering, like, I don't know, a car or a plane. But imagine I said to you, Kevin, I was like, I'm gonna make a plane and I have a phenomenal idea. I'm gonna have two of the engines going to the right And then I'm going to have one engine driving in the exact opposite direction. Do you think that's going to be very efficient or powerful? Yeah, yeah. You'd be like, that's ridiculous, right? But if you think about how a lot of us are leading our lives, we are thinking and behaving in one direction and then feeling in the exact opposite direction. Let me give you a few examples to make this really clear for your listeners. So I feel exhausted. I feel like I desperately need rest what do I do? I overwork. I feel like I really want to speak up. There's something on my mind that I like want to say. There's something I need to tell you, or there's like a creative idea that I want to share. It's not so common, but I'm pretty excited about it. So I feel like I want to speak up. What do I do? I keep my mouth shut. I want to hear a lot of people talk about boundaries. Boundaries are so emotionally powerful. Okay, you know what? I'm really going to start honoring my boundaries and I'm going to start using my sacred no. Well, when push comes to shove, what do I do? I say yes in each of those moments, I have divided my energy from my energy. I don't just mean this metaphorically. I mean, quite literally, the emotional neurologic energy of my emotions is being divided from the energy that I'm using to drive my behavior. And people love to say emotions are so confusing. Emotions are not that confusing. There's an emotional math to our lives. If I divide my behavior from my feeling for enough time, what ends up happening is I will very logically feel exhausted, depleted, burnt out, numb, bored, and anxious.
0: I want everybody to hear that because those words we all resonate with. And I do, Julia. I mean, I flat out do. So I took that out of your book, self-betrayal, self-division, divided. That is not only something that I have done and I think we as a culture we have been trained. We really kind of approve of that. We we advocate that, that, okay, just because you feel that way, this is how you perform. Granted, if you're in a certain... I mean, if you're on the battlefield, you know, if you're in a in a in a in a sports event or something like that, then sure, suck it up and go do your thing. That's kind of the thing. That's during the game. There, it doesn't work in life. But I did. I was a pro cyclist. I took that concept over into relationships. I took it over as a husband, as a father. And regardless of what I think, you just do the valiant thing and serve somebody, anyways. Even though I'm doing it. In bitterness is what the, the word that you know has come to me, that I just let myself do it, but my heart was not in a good place. But you taking it from a scientific approach, you no, know, it's a division of energy like that. It's, it's fighting against myself and that, yeah, it turn out exhausted, which I wonder how many of the pathologies that we have out there and chronic illness and disease and the things that people are dealing with really come down to this, I mean, would you, do, would you say cognitive dissonance as well? that we're living in.
1: Yes, I would say there's definitely a a cognitive piece to this, of course. I also think for a lot of us, to your point, is like we've been severed from our emotions. Yeah. And I want you to just like think back, you know, how, how does this even come into being? So it's interesting to me, more than interesting. It's like, Awe inspiring to me to think about what happens to the brain in childhood. So, through years zero to five, you have just magnificent neural development. So, something like a million neural connections are being made every second in the earliest years of childhood. Okay. So, the most powerful form of leadership on the planet is. The parent-child relationship is parental leadership, simply because of the neurobiology of that. So let's even say that you grew up, you know, obviously there's a spectrum of households and there's a spectrum of parenting. Let's even say that you come from like a reasonably good household. I think a lot of us, and I have little kids and I certainly do my fair share of this stuff in part because of how I was parented and the idea of intergenerational transmission of patterns is a thing. Mm -hmm. So you start to say things like, um, you know, the kids like, I don't want to eat the broccoli. Eat the broccoli. Hey, mama, I'm hungry. You're not hungry. Hey, go get up right now. Get up right now and go tell him you're so go and tell him you're sorry. But I'm not sorry. Hey, I said right now, get march yourself over there. So in all of these moments, again, very classic, ordinary events, we're kind of and you imagine like how many times is that happening? from our parents and our family and our school system, where the child is feeling one experience inside his or her own nervous system, his or her own body. And then these very powerful external influences on their life are saying, don't trust that, do this instead. Well, then what, if if you think about the number of times that happens, you're talking on the order of hundreds of thousands of kind of these mini things, it creates a culture of people pleasers and codependents. What does this mean? If I could boil all of my work down to one question, it would really be this. How can I get these people around me who matter to me, my partners, my kids, the people I work with, the people on social media? How can I get these people around me to behave differently so that I don't have to feel feelings I don't like inside of my own body? Hmm. Right? Because if you really understand what the brain is doing, we say problem. But if you really think about it, what you're really saying more literally is you're saying pain. Mm-hmm. Be- and, and by pain, I mean any any emotional feeling that you don't like. Irritation, sadness, rage, disappointment, inadequacy. So if you, let's say, Kevin, you're like, Julia, this is the dumbest interview I've ever done. I'm, I'm ending this, this. You're an embarrassment. I, we're ending this right now. If I legitimately... It's almost inconceivable, but legitimately did not feel bad about that. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't humiliated. That didn't make me sad. I would have no problem. Right. In other words, every single problem in my life means there's a bad feeling in my nervous system. So what happens is we over-focus on the situation. Hey, Jim, I'm going to need you to stop talking to me that way. Hey, my partner doesn't love me because he doesn't want to watch three episodes of Netflix with me. My kids don't really respect me because really, really? I think the real problem might be there's a more expansive and then therefore empowering conversation, which is like, hold on one second. Can we talk about the feelings inside your own body? Because that has a big transformative healing role to play in this too.
0: That is daunting. Uh, Because as I I read that message, Julia, in your book, I'm thinking there are certain things That you could say to me negative things like you're just talking about, that's the worst interview, whatever you could say that, you know, Kevin, you're the, you're absolutely the worst, you're the worst interview I've ever had It's the worst show. And honestly, if you said that now I would be, I'd be disappointed because I, I do want to people please naturally. I want you to think this is great and whatnot. I have enough testimony behind me though. It wouldn't really phase me. I would think, eh, you know, maybe you're having a bad day. You're, <laughs> you're, a you're
1: very generous. That's yeah. bad manners.
0: Well, uh, but but it wouldn't really phase me. Same thing, honestly. If somebody said, you know, gosh, Kevin, you're just uh, you know, you're you're just you're a terrible shape. You're just totally unfit and I, whatever. I know better. I got proof. You're a bad father. I man, I just I got testimony from my kids. Okay, so it's not gonna phase me. It's the areas where I'm insecure though. Correct where you at? Kevin, you, you are just, you're, you're not a good businessman. Man, I've got some history there. You know, you're bad with finances. I've got some insecurities, you know, there, there you're you, with relationships. You're not very vulnerable, Kevin. Oh, now you're starting to get into these things and you go into self-worth and that's where I've gotten more focused that that's the areas where I am. Well, I guess again, just I'm, I'm insecure. And so I'm open to that. So that feeling is, I I mean, I'm, I'm associated with it. I'm not, and we got to have, I mean, go with that though, because you're not telling us to not have the negative emotions. You're not saying, Hey, be psychopathic. That's the best thing out there. It is to feel it. So you'd be disappointed if I said, Oh, this is a terrible interview, but it wouldn't rock your self worth, but that's a big, that's a big issue to get. How do you get there? Especially in areas where you do feel insecure. There may be some proof behind you. What do you
1: do? Yeah. So.
0: exclusive to podcast customers you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 value so to get the special deal go to a-i-r-d-o-c-t-o-r-p-r-o.com use promo code kevin thankfully the days of building a business website then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone Today, shopify has fixed all that yahoofinance.com. dot com.
1: great examples. And I love how you made the distinction because you're saying I have enough of an emotional relationship with my athleticism or my, you know, my parenting where those, you would kind of see it more, your perception of it would be more on me than it would be on yourself. So you, you kind of made this really important point, which is we all have different relationships with our own lives. And I hope that most of the people listening, there's things they like about themselves, Yeah, but all of us have these areas of emotional vulnerability. So to explain this, I really want to explain a really useful way to think about the brain. So I said, you know, we spend more time obsessing about, you know, AI than we do the the powerful operation of our own brains. So first you have to understand what really is your brain. So the best way to think about the machinery of your brain is as a pattern detection machine. So your brain's moving you through your life going apple, 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 fill in the blank, apple, apple. Except it's not actually going Apple, Apple, Apple. So what if if the brain is a pattern detection machine, what is the energy that powers the machine, right? When we plug our cell phones in at night, we need the electricity to make the, the machine run. The the electricity that your brain runs on really is this energy of emotion. So when it comes to areas of your life that just don't feel good to you, you have a core emotional pattern, apple, 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 fill in the blank, apple. Here's what a core emotional pain pattern sounds like. It's going to be something like this. Things just don't really work out for me. Things just don't really work out for me. Things just don't really work out for me. Then I get an, if that's kind of this underlying, very often unconscious pattern, watch me get a new job, watch me get into a new relationship. And then I promise you, you will return. You might get a spike for, I don't know, three months, six months, but the brain cannot sustainably hold what there's not an underlying pattern for. So I will return to my baseline that things just don't work out for me. If I have a core emotional pattern that people just don't really listen to me, people just don't really listen to me, people just then watch me you could show up on social media you could have a successful and I, I work with plenty of people like this they actually I think by a lot of objective measures of success look very successful, but they still have this underlying emotional sensation that people just don't take them seriously
0: yeah
1: Have you ever seen this is actually a, I think a great story have you ever seen the um the movie the Polar Express?
0: yes, long time ago Com- okay yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's this little, I have little kids. We'd love to watch the Polar Express. So there's this scene where basically the kids are on this amazing magical train going to the North Pole and two kids are talking to this one little boy. And this one little boy in particular is this really sad kind of downtrodden boy and Christmas never works out for him. So he's on this train and he is now, I swear to God, like five minutes away from the North Pole. He is about to meet the man in the the big red suit. He's like living every kid's fantasy, right? And what he's saying on the train as he keeps going, Christmas just doesn't work out for me. Christmas just doesn't work out for me. Christmas just doesn't work out for me. And his friends are like, what are you talking about? Like we are pulling into the North Pole. And I just thought, you know, like, this is like, of course, the psychologist and the mother in me. I'm like, what a fascinating moment. How like our relationship with how we emotionally feel about our lives colors everything we do in our lives. Is it the only thing? Of course not. But it is an incredibly powerful source of our fundamental relationship with reality.
0: You that's what's so daunting. You said baseline. And I thought default, you know, my default self, my default belief. And really you got me thinking about expectations and we've all heard, you know, the self-fulfilling prophecies. And I think we kind of give a head nod to it. We don't really take it to heart. And that's what you're bringing to us that back to energy. So if I am giving off this energy of like an insecurity, Uh, you said one, well, the story in your book was the, um, forgot her, her name, but she was saying, uh, people just don't understand me. People just don't understand me. And you had her change it to, I'm just ahead of my time. They don't, it was in a business scenario and I'm ahead of my time. And I thought how brilliant it it gives her confidence instead of people to understand, it gives her confidence. And then my thought is it also gives her, uh, some grace For the people who may not understand her because she's ahead of her time, but the energy changes. It goes from this negative to the positive and, and back to that aspect of, Oh my gosh. If I walk in to a social setting, let's say with like the, like what you're talking about, I just, I just don't connect with people. I just don't connect with people that that energy is felt by them. And I'm going to do the things that fulfill that out there. It's kind of like the old. Who, who was it like, uh, you know, Ford or something like that, whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. And going back to that, but how I feel, whatever I feel is probably going to, people love that word manifest these days. And my, I just look at it, you do the things that line up with your expectations. So it really caused me, we're back to being, or not back to, but kind of to being present. So if I come to you, if I come to you on this interview and I do a check of what's my energy, what's my expectation? And if I think, oh, you know, I haven't prepared. I didn't read the book. She's really smart. She's from Harvard. I just, I never even went to school. This is going to be terrible. It's going to come across. I can't hide that. You're probably going to feel that energy right away, even here on a, you know, a, a, a virtual camera here. And it's going to come out that it calls me to check my back to that kind of that energy level. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I think too, like if we go through life, you know, the, the, I think one thing that we can all agree is like the world is teeming with an impossible quantity of data. And I don't just mean like the stuff on all the, you know, the internet and the AI, I just mean like, there are trees outside and there's wind against my skin and there's noises and like just your brain cannot, your brain is magnificent, but it can't, it can't attend to everything. Right. So if I go to, to use your example, if I go to a party and I am, I am sort of predisposed to look for evidence of my rejection, I will absolutely find it. We also, yeah, um, yes. And we also have to be like, I think there's something so calming about the like studying the brain, meaning so soothing and healing. If I really start to see like, okay, everyone's brain is kind of processing in similar ways. That's not to say we all have the same brain, but you know, there, there's only so much things they can attend to. They have their own insecurities. If the threshold for my feeling like I belong at this party to keep going back to your example is like people have to bend over backwards to include me. That's, that's just not reasonable. And it's not reasonable, not because maybe they wouldn't want to do it, or they don't like it. It's just like, that's not actually how life unfolds. So I think we have to be more powerful to say, wait a second, and and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a study that, you know, so we um, going back to this fMRI and EEG research is we A very common, well-validated paradigm is we put people into these scanners or we hook them up to EEGs and we show them four faces. So we show them happy faces, we show them sad faces, we show them angry faces, or we show them neutral faces. Hmm. Some of the most interesting research actually comes from neutral faces. Hmm. So when you take healthy, we call them healthy controls. So people that don't have a psychiatric diagnosis, like, you know, anxiety or social anxiety or depression, so you take healthy controls and you show them the neutral faces, they are more likely to say the faces are neutral. When you take people who already have anxiety, meaning they're kind of already in a different emotional state and you show them the exact same face, they are more likely to report those faces as threatening. Hmm. Who's right? It really depends on your emotional state. So what I'm saying here is that th- this idea, like even objective reality, is it a collective consciousness? Sure. Is it? Can we all agree that the appointment is at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday? Sure. And obviously we've seen how the collective consciousness evolves over time. But all of this is still being mediated through our own nervous systems. <laughs> the, the quality of your brain determines the quality of your life. And so we have to understand how, you know, one, I will tell you one of the biggest things I see people trip over is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uncertainty about how our partners feel about us, uncertainty about like our careers, uncertainty about what's going to happen to our, you know, and I, I want to say, um, can I say one other thing here? Please. So, you know, my my fundamental area of expertise is trauma. So I've worked with very, very profound trauma. Um, I mean, some of the most, horrific things that you could imagine. And so I've certainly worked with my fair share of difficult, painful human emotions, rage, terror, despondency, betrayal. But I will tell you that one of the most difficult human emotions is one that we actually don't think that much about, because it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. Hmm. And that emotion is the emotion of confusion. Now, I don't care if you call it confusion, uncertainty, ambiguity. It's if you go back to this idea that what's the fundamental function of the brain? Patterns. Well, if I go apple, 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 fill in the blank, and now the brain's like, is it a watermelon? Is it a nectarine? Is it a banana? So do you see how, in a way, the brain can process anger? The brain can process rage. The brain can process rejection. The one thing that's like kind of against the actual machinery of the brain is uncertainty.
0: Okay, that's, and that's a chapter in your book. So let's go there because. That's again a big story of my own that we talk about here on the show. Coming from a religious background, where it's trying to take—I'm going to. This is my paraphrase. This is my personal doctrine. How's that? Taking the mystery of spirituality and we try to put it into a container. It's efficient. I mean, even making you know judgments, we go through the day making these rash uh, judgments, stereotyping any because it's efficient. I don't want to take the time to figure it out and to deal with the uncertainty. So I'd rather things were black and white uh, right and wrong. I wish I would say, you know, health and wellness. Okay. if You want to be healthy? Eat this. End of story. That would be so much easier instead of having to go, well, it depends on you and your tolerances and your genetics and your, you know, whatever. Now we might all say that You know, McDonald's is probably not going to help anybody a whole lot. Of course, my doctor buddy would say, unless you're starving to death and then it's going to save your life. Okay, granted. But in general, we want to know those things. We want to know those parameters. So yeah, confusion is, to me, it's inefficient. And and that's what I have to deal with now in my life. I can't take my spirituality. My black and white is gone. So we're talking about the mystery and the gray, which I'm finding more peace in, but it's not the easiest thing to explain. And you've got to kind of look at the moment by moment and figure out what to do. Kind of like the- you know,
1: Why are you feeling more peace? Say more about that.
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm one, my first thought is I have to. I have to, if I believe that it's not a black and white, that there is some uncertainty within that I've got to. And I think as I go along, it's finding more peace in the uncertainty overall and looking at most of the things that I believe in have a level of uncertainty in them. The black and white is just not there. Well, you said objective reality, you know, even there, and I, we want that objective reality to be a fact and yet what you're showcasing in here is objective reality happens in front of you and me and we both are going to boom attach a meaning to it based on our uh, back to you with your patterns and that that's maybe the biggest uncertainty of all i mean to me julia is to look at that which point. one Th- that what? objective reality is kind of benign i mean it just doesn't mean much we're going to attach a meaning to it you're going to attach yours i'm going to attach yours and then we got to figure out how to cohabitate with each other with differing perspectives. And you know that how many relational issues are right there. Something happened. It's seemingly benign.
1: One of the most profound examples of this in my own career, and I've done a lot of research into trauma, is You could have two people undergo the same traumatic event. Now, in order for it to be a traumatic event, there's actually a very scientific definition for trauma. It has to be horrific. So everyone, the experience of trauma, as the name would suggest, is traumatizing. But what's been really fascinating to trauma researchers like myself is you can have people that have wildly different interpretations than after the trauma. So no one is ever saying the trauma wasn't bad. Trauma is, like I said, horrific. But at the extreme, you can have one person who will develop post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which most people have heard about. And at the other extreme, you have people who go on to experience what we call PTG, post-traumatic growth. How could it be that the event was depraved and then you have can have two very different responses to it right so i think you know and and then the other thing is like i work i do a lot of work in relation so my expertise is really the brain relationship and emotion so i do a lot of work with teams and i do a lot of work at home what's been very interesting and i I have my own (laughs) my own marriage so this hits close to home is how often it is very uncommon that someone will walk into my office and let's just, I'll just make this, I've seen every iteration of this though, but I was, so don't get stuck on the genders. But like, let's say, she, I, I never hear someone go, yeah, I think that he hates me. And he's like, yep, I definitely hate her. Okay, we're done. What happens is yeah. she'll say, for example, I just feel like he doesn't love me. And he'll say, I don't know why she keeps saying that. Like, I love her so much. Now I'm, yes, I'm so frustrated. I feel so bereft. I feel like, why are we still having this conversation? But like, no, the problem, here or it's not that I don't love her or, and the guy says the same thing. So how could it be that we're saying, I don't experience an emotional energy that you are telling me you're trying to deliver to me. And I think the answer to this, Kevin, is that this, I think this is a really useful way to think about emotions, emotions. You can think of them as a currency. Okay. So we have all kinds of currencies. We have time, we have money. So if, if I come to you and I'm like, Hey, Kevin, I need 10 bucks. And you're like, Julia, I would love to help you out, but I just do not have 10 bucks to give you. I would be like, okay, that's disappointing, whatever. But I would get over it really quickly. A lot of times we are trying to give to people emotional experiences that we do not possess. In other words, very often I will have parents come to me and say, my child is anxious. And I say, that's amazing. Like, that's amazingly insightful. We're definitely going to work on that. Let me ask you a few questions. How are you doing? And they're like, I'm stressed out of my mind. I feel like my life is so frenetic. I'm worried about my kid. So when we know that emotion is a thing of contagion, we know that the neuroscience of attachment is real. How can I create a calming, peaceful, soothing experience for my child with an energy that I do not possess in right. my own nervous system?
0: Right. It. That reeks to, uh, no, i got a question for you then on that emotional experiences that we don't possess that pulls into empathy. Yeah. You know, I'm supposed to empathize. You so see, you share something with me, you share, oh my gosh, I had this really traumatic childbirth experience. I, I don't know how to empathize with you on that specific thing or, or yeah, I haven't had a, a big trauma like you talked about that it's hard to empathize with that and yet we look at empathy and we try to make that an across the board thing you're an empath or you're not and i actually that's, that's almost a side step but i want to i'm curious on your uh, you know as a uh, in your in your role how you look at empathy are there empaths or not or do we empathize with the things that we can relate to but even if you're a so-called empath if it's something that you, you haven't how can you
1: So what a, that's an awesome question. So I think empathy is a huge construct. I do not think it's binary. Um, Do I think that some people are more, like some people are born better at, they're more athletic. Some people are better, maybe like they grow up to be better at chess that some people might. So are there all these genetic and environmental factors that can shape us? Sure. So do some people have a higher sensitivity to emotion? Sure. But I'll give you a perfect example from my own life. I am a civilian and have treated a lot of combat trauma. Mm -hmm. So I don't think for one second, these male combat veterans think that I understand the experience of combat. I think they, I think though empathy can come through a lot of channels. And I think the two main ones are, I think they're saying, do I feel like this woman, I can trust this woman. I can trust this doctor who does this, has given her life to the treatment of trauma. Yes. Do I also feel like what she is saying Is and and maybe they're not saying it in this way, but evidence based. Like in other words, she really knows what she's talking about. She's not just like, okay, hocus pocus. Turn three times to the left and then rub a feather on your ear. No, so it's like I think the empathy is coming through. It can come through various channels. And again, I think I think the whole point of empathy is like, do I feel like you're listening to my emotional energy? Right. So if someone, if a woman comes to you and says, I had a really traumatic birth experience. I don't think for one second, they want to know what it's like for you to have a baby come out of your vagina. I think what they're saying is they're they're, they're asking for something from you, which is something like, are you listening to me? Are you supporting me? Are you, are you soft to me? But um, I don't think in order to be empathic with someone, we have to have lived the precise experience.
0: Okay. And I don't want to deviate. I want to come back to trauma, but I just, I continue to be curious about this aspect of empathy because I tune into people's energy Mm -hmm. very much. So doesn't mean that I'm always compassionate though. I may tune into the energy over there and I don't care or I don't want to. And I'm going to go the it. other way. Whereas somebody who may or may not, I would think, I don't think that they tune into energy that well, but they do care. They do have a compassionate heart or, or whatever. And I feel like we get lost with what's really empathic because I've seen some people who are really compassionate. I think, man, they are not empathic as far as they're not able to tune in an energy. And I am, and like kind
1: of in the sense of like they're reading the room wrong. Like they're no, they're, they're like they're not, they care. they're
0: not they're not socially aware. They're not reading the room wrong. Yeah. They care, but they're not. It's almost like I need to. I want to like we need to team up and go, hey. I'll tell you what the energy is. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, you go deal with it, but I'll tell you what the energy is. And it's not always one compact uh, union of those. Fair? Uh,
1: yes, I'm following you. Yeah. So what do you, What? how do you explain that?
0: I'm just enamored with it right now because I'm realizing that I do tune into that energy and not everybody does. I don't always know what to do with it or what I want to do with it. And that's, well, that gets into my own dealings with negative feelings and negative energy and i can almost take that into trauma i wanted to ask you about this julia you were talking about trauma and i was looking through my notes and i can't find it so i'm going to paraphrase it because i wrote it not long ago that you said that the in i'm going to take over as i start into this and you know what i'm talking about that the the worst the, the hard thing about trauma for people is not the trauma you know where i'm going not the trauma itself but who they were before say that better I know. That. Okay.
1: So I, I, I think I know where you're going to go with it. And if I don't nail it, you can like bring oh. up other things, but I, I actually think the agony of trauma is not what it did to us, but it's what it does to us. So think about oh. this. So the agony of trauma isn't, isn't just that they hurt me then. Right. It's that I can trust no one now. It's not that they rejected me then, they neglected me then. It's that everyone betrays me now. The whole thing about trauma, and this is very, very important. Most people, when they have trauma, if you look at the epidemiological research, most people that experience trauma recover, right? So the human body, the system of the biology is quite resilient. If I fall down and I, you know, bang my leg up, it's going to hurt for a while and then it's going to naturally recover, Right. We think that for most traumas, people will naturally recover, meaning they will not develop PTSD or, or some other kind of disorder. So when what happens, though, is when when the energy doesn't move through our bodies, when, when it gets trapped, we're still reliving through the emotional energy, the experience of a trauma that happened many, many years ago. So uh, these things happen to me in my child, And obviously childhood trauma is oftentimes the most complex for obvious reasons. It's like if the if the traumatizers were my parents, I didn't have the resources to leave. I didn't. You see what I'm saying? So so childhood trauma is kind of a, a, a very complex thing to treat. But like if these things happened years ago but i'm still reliving them today because of the emotional patterning the trauma is still very much alive because it's still happening in the emotional energy and that's really what we think when we talk about trauma processing in in a clinical sense like we actually have amazing treatments for trauma do you want me to tell you do you, do you want me to tell you a story
0: yes please
1: so i tell this story in energy rising and i i it's actually a very extreme case of trauma and i Think the reason that I chose it was because if I think most people will not relate to this level of trauma, but if it's true at the most extreme forms of human suffering, then there's going to be something for us all to glean because yeah. human behavior and human emotion exists on a continuum. So this is a combat veteran who had experienced trauma in the context of a convoy. Now, he had been back for many, many years. Okay, This is not a very, a very important piece of, this, of the, the story. So he finally comes to see me many years after his deployment. And I basically am like, what's going on? Tell me how you've been coping. So he says, well, I don't drive really anymore because I don't feel safe driving. His trauma happened in the context of a convoy, even though he's back in suburban USA. I don't go out in public. I it have basically lost my relationships with my kids because when I came back, they were pretty young and little kids are volatile and unpredictable. And that's very that can be difficult to be around when you have PTSD, all that noise and volatility. Um, his, he, his marriage with his wife had ended. He was getting in altercations at work because a symptom of PTSD is irritability. So basically, I say to him, it sounds like your life is shrinking. And he says, yes. I'm, I'm avoiding all these things now. I'm avoiding people. I'm avoiding places. I'm avoiding things. And it's not working, right? So if he's doing all this avoidance to avoid feeling the things he felt when he was traumatized all those years ago. Right. So I say, well, the good news here is that we have very effective scientific-based treatments for this. So the frontline, most evidence-based treatments for PTSD, something called prolonged exposure. And... there's a couple other really good evidence-based ones, but the one we are using is this one called prolonged exposure. And the treatment works like this. Instead of avoiding talking about your trauma, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in detail and we're going to talk about it repeatedly. We're also going to record you on your phone talking about your trauma and you're going to go home and you're going to listen to it. Now, at first he's like, this is like, they basically pay you to say this, Like I just told you, like this, like talking about the trauma is now working for me. And I, you know, but he's, I, I think the whole reason that therapy works back to our earlier empathy conversation is like, am I providing good psychoeducation? Do I, you know, I'm trusting him. He's trusting me. And finally he decides very courageously, I'm going to give this a shot. Now around week 12. Now, remember, he's been back for many, many years. He walks into my office kind of holds the phone up in front of my face and wiggles it and says, I can't do this anymore. So I'm like, sit down, tell me what's going on. And he's like, doc, every time I listen to this recording, I fall asleep. It is as dull as. So this memory that had literally tormented him for years is now so diffused, the energy has been so transformed, it lulls him to sleep. Hmm. Does that mean that the trauma is not traumatizing? No, the trauma will forever be a trauma. That's what trauma is. But it, the energy has been moved from his nervous system to allow his brain to re-encode the information in a new way. And then when that information is reorganized, he's now able to relate to things in ways that aren't so triggering.
0: Okay. I want to go into that, but before now, but I want to take your story and ask you in relation to, okay. So the dude is in a convoy. So are some other people. He experienced PTSD. Some of them, as you said, experienced the opposite. Post
1: May or may not. We don't I mean, yeah, I know you're talking. I don't know. Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Theoretically somebody else was there, somebody else's, and they experienced, you know, growth and we're looking at it as, they didn't come into it to your statement in the book. They did not, they came into it already with a pattern. Fair. They came into Mm -hmm. that with some pre-programming, some with their upbringing, their belief system, their whatever they came in. And in, if I'm, if I understand correctly, you could in theory have said, gosh, we could kind of do some, if the test was there, maybe if you had done an fMRI beforehand, you could say, yeah, chances are this, these two are going to have PTSD and these are going to be okay based on these parameters because it's who they were before they came into the trauma. That's the most likely predictor of whether they will recover mm-hmm. or not. Fair. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that fair. Cause that's what we can, that's what's, um, that's, what's exciting to me now is saying, and this sounds morbid, Julia. I've used this before. I hope my listeners will forgive me, but it's just a, it's just an interesting one because it's part of my life. I have nine children, uh, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I have nine kids.
1: My head just, my all my neurons just exploded I, just, I know. because I, I got two and some days I'm like, I don't think I can keep it together anymore. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't know that I ever do. So that's why I'm here getting free therapy all the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I have those and I think about this again, it sounds morbid, but the chances of me losing a child, are just statistically higher. Now I'm not pessimistic. I'm not expecting that, but I'm looking at it and it's heavy on me to go, how am I going to withstand that? If I were to lose a child or a grandchild or, or whatnot, am I going to have PTSD or am I going to come through? Well, now is my opportunity to be preparing myself so that if that happens, I am, you know, I am resilient. I can recover but i'm going to have to look at what are my patterns? i mean where would i start what are my patterns i want to you know use your book to say okay how can i make sure that i have resilient patterns around i don't even know where to go loss around am i attached to them am i are, are they my well, you get my point. I mean, I'm looking at that now. How can I prepare myself? So when a trauma happens, if, if when a trauma happens, I am resilient, I do have growth because if you're saying that the trauma, the biggest, the worst thing is not the trauma. It's how I perceive it. The meaning that I attach to it. Help me out.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're touching on some huge existential things right now. And I think that's part of the draw for me. you know, people will ask me, like, how have I, I've done trauma work for, I mean, depending on how you want to look at it, 20 some years or 40 some years. So I've really do have a calling to work in human pain, the sort of intersection between human pain and human power. You know, one of the things I've learned from this work is, is, um, this world makes us no promises. Yeah. W- I didn't know I was going to talk about this here. So I'm trying to think how I want to say this, you know, this is a really se- So I learned a long time ago to stop asking the question, why?
0: Hmm.
1: There's not some of the most horrific, depraved, heartbreaking things ha- because, because like, because they weren't a good person because like you can't, you can never get the math on that to work. It's like some of the things that happen to people, they did not deserve Well, what's really interesting then is, and this, you know, again, I don't know how this is going to sound exactly, but when we start to get into the sense of like deservedness, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people mean it to be very empowering. And I think actually a lot of times it can harm us because what starts to happen is like, well, I, I should only get what I deserve. Well, I, my whole body of work is built on people getting things that are absolutely unjust and unfair. So the world, sometimes people will, and sometimes it's not even done by other human beings, people will drop dead, people get electrocuted, people, I mean, I've had some, you know, really, really um, unexpected things happen. So I think we get into this very interesting conversation of like, well, how do we live powerfully? You know, you're raising this question about the mortality of your own family, that's about as deep as it gets. We hear people talk a lot about this idea of presence, Of being present and being mindful. And I think sometimes it's talked about so much, it kind of sounds like these buzzwords that don't really mean anything. Yeah. But going back to this idea of the brain and uncertainty, what I have come to realize is one of the most powerful things we can say is, I don't know. Hmm interestingly i think a lot of our reflexive reactions are like the person who knows the most is the most powerful now i of course am not advocating like okay everyone should stop knowing anything and just stop paying total i mean that's that's absurd what i am saying though is our utter obsession with information and what comes next and how to do it and how to organize it and how to control it and how to prepare for it and how to we start to get into this this thing that i call the overs Overworking, overdoing, overthinking, over preparing, over functioning. I mean, should I go on and on? It's just, it's just all there. The thing about doing the overs is you're trying to do them so they make you more safe. If I work a little bit more, I'll be a little bit more safe. Yeah. If I prepare more for the mortality of my family or my kids, I'll be more safe. If I think a little bit harder, But do you see that there is a galactic difference between thinking and overthinking, between working and overworking, between giving and overgiving? Mm -hmm. One is done in a state of like pleasure. Most people like to work. Mm -hmm. Anytime a human being overworks, they're doing it because they are afraid. So now think about this paradox. My brain doesn't like uncertainty. So my brain says to me, hey, Julia, do you know what the opposite of uncertainty is? The opposite of uncertainty is certainty seems logical, linguistically seems like the opposite.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What we know from the field of, of neuropsychology is the more you obsessively seek certainty through the overs, over-preparing, over-thinking, over-planning, over-analyzing, overworking, the worse you will feel. In other words, obsessive certainty seeking actually makes people more anxious. This actually is the best definition I can give you of anxiety. Anxiety is a dysfunctional relationship with certainty. Hmm. So if I think this isn't supposed to happen, you're not supposed to talk to me like that. That's not supposed to, I'm never supposed, this should, do you see how, then I will, I will externally prepare for all of the contingencies. But if you think about what, for example, PTSD is or OCD is, these are all anxiety disorders. OCD is if I check the stove, for the 47th time tonight then for sure i know i will be safe now part of the madness of ocd it's a really it's a really debilitating disorder is people they're not psychotic they know they are saying why am i going back and checking the stove again this is this is it's driving me crazy it's ridiculous so it's there's a part of the brain that then kind of gets looped like let me check for certainty okay I have certainty I feel a little bit better for a little bit of time I get a little bit of a rise and then I dip again and then I have to go and check again and then I dip again and then so then I get in these over overcompensating cycles now a lot of people don't have OCD but again use this as a metaphor it's like all of this overdoing it in our lives we think it's making us safer and it's actually making us sicker
0: Okay. Use the word safe a whole bunch of times in that talking right then. You also said the word security in there and you're making me come back to the question you asked me as I was talking about spirituality and finding peace in the uncertainty. And now as you're saying that maybe that's the answer because I have, I am getting better at not attaching my security to to having to know. Yeah. Yeah. And to having to know. Correct. And and having this, this, so that's, you said security. And I thought, again, if my self-worth, it it reminds me, we did a show on a series on belief in essence with a guy named Andy Norman. He has a book called mental immunity. And we talked about belief and he was talking in essence, or what my interest was is the danger when that belief, that thing that we believe in is attached to our self-image because now mm-hmm. I got to hold on to it and I'm not biased. I'm not confident in it. I'm holding on to it, which we see. And I'm going to pick on religion again. That's where I, I've, I've come from. And so many things uh, fall in line there in regards to this. And if my, if I can take my, get back to your self-worth and do I have self-worth even if I'm not certain? Am I and secure even if I don't, check on that thing over and over. Why is that? Why is my say, that's what I'm curious about too, is why, when you talk about anxiety, why am I anxious about that? Why am I worried about that? And so often when I look at it and take it to the worst case scenario, I'm not going to die. This isn't really that scary. Well, and I've got to question that and come down and look at Yeah. So I'm interested in safety and security in regards to the certainty.
1: Well, and also, like, let me just tell you another like lab study that we did that I think is um, this. This actually is not my research, but I'm talking about sort of scientists in general. So there's lots of uncertainty researchers out there, and so these researchers took people into a lab, and there are these machines that electrocute you. Okay, so they're shock machines, and we had these in our lab, and they the, the shock hurts. It's a very painful experience yeah. to be shocked. So they would say, okay, the machine's going to count down: five, four, three, two, one, and you're absolutely going to get shocked or you're going to be in a condition and the machine's going to count down five, four, three, two, one, and you may or may not get shocked. Yeah. Now people statistically prefer to be in the condition where they are certain that they're going to get shocked. People that are like, you know, a spouse, these rational actor models of human behavior love to say that human beings aren't rational. I don't think this could be further than the truth. The brain is the most exquisite machine on the planet. What this is telling you is something very powerful about your relationship to uncertainty. And what it is telling you is that there are real situations in your life where the emotional load of uncertainty, emotional uncertainty, is quite literally more painful than physical pain. Yes, So what, to go back to your example is like, when I play this out, like sometimes the worst case scenario isn't even that bad. It's like, okay, I like do this thing and it embarrasses me or I I have to try again or whatever. Even if it was bad, there are cases in our life. And that example, I think just shows this is that I would, the bad, the bad actual thing is less painful than me having to sit with emotional uncertainty. So we do ourselves a great service when we say this is a very heavy load for the human brain to handle. Mm -hmm. We have to have grace and mercy for ourselves, first of all. Then we start to say, okay, so I I recognize that because it's hard, I keep doing these reflexive things to fix it called the overs, overworking, overdoing, overgiving. Okay, that's not really working because it's just making me more exhausted and more on edge and more anxious. So then there's this really powerful question, well, what is the opposite of uncertainty. The opposite of uncertainty is Mm self-trust. And I don't, I don't know if you want to just talk about self or I don't know if you want to talk about God, but it's this idea of an inner experience that whatever happens Mm -hmm. out there, Mm -hmm. I am going to be okay in here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does not mean I can have no zing, zing, zap, zap, zoink, zoink of my neurons. Meaning your nervous system, the function of your nervous system is to create feeling. So there will be days when you feel anxious. There will be days when you feel afraid. There will be days when you feel inadequate. It's just a feeling. It's like the lungs just inflating and deflating, inflating and deflating. Does it mean it's pleasant? No, that's what pain means. But we should not derail our whole lives to avoid feeling a feeling that is inevitable. In my book, Energy Rising, I talk about this idea of picking a more powerful pain. If there was an option that was truly pain-free, I would tell everybody to pull that lever. But that is like trying to find a place to live where gravity makes things fall up. Yeah, It's a, it's a fool's errand. So in a world where pain is an inevitable outcome, let me choose the pain that empowers me more. In other words, I have a difficult conversation. Should I choose the pain of avoidance? Because constantly avoiding that? Still makes me anxious. I'm wondering if I'm going to run into you. I'm wondering, or should I choose the pain that I feel when I start to engage with you in a difficult conversation? My heart will pound. I'll sweat a little bit. My throat might quiver. Who cares? Because at the end of that conversation, do you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to be free and I'm going to be stronger. And I'm going to have more belief in myself that when push comes to shove, I can show up for myself. People love to talk about psychological safety these days. And this is amazing. It's an amazing moment to be a a mental health expert. I, you know, I've been kind of watching the conversation for many years. There's no doubt that the brain needs safety, but we're missing a very core component in this conversation. How in the world is it going to matter if the entire world gives you safety, your spouse, the people in your community, the people that you work with, if you are willing to be dangerous to yourself? And even if people give you safety, this is, I want to take this one level deeper. Yeah. So let's say your spouse magically starts to comply. Let's say your boss magically starts to comply. Let's say the people on social media magically start to comply. You, your system still knows that you're not safe based on your own authority. You're safe because they gave it to you. Yeah. And the problem with that is if they can give it, they can take it away. Yeah. So the idea of building the inner muscle of emotional power is like what we, the core of what we need to show up more powerfully. Do we need people to be respectful of us? Do we need to be attuned to other human beings? Hell to the yes. But I said earlier, I can't even really be super attuned to the people I'm saying I care about either in my home or in my community if I'm cut off from myself. Yeah, It's like trying to make the day when you don't have the night, the two come together.
0: I'm back thinking about, I'm in hammer. Yeah. I, I want this to happen. You know, I want to do an fMRI where you hook me up and go through some list. Okay. Some, some list that you've got of things of again, statements, images, whatever, and see my reaction and then see one to something that's, you know, it's, it's, it should be a benign reaction. I should be okay with it and see that I go off. I go off. I have this negative perspective on it. Some overlay from my, again, from my genetics, my upbringing, my whatever, from an experience, PTSD, whatever, and see and correct that, help me come to, you, you, again, we're back on the word safety. How can I feel safe with that? I want to go through all the things of why are these instances, objective realities like we talked about, or you know, relational things, and I feel, why do I feel unsafe? What is it about me? I mean, I've literally done that, Julia, in, in therapy and going, gosh, yeah, I, I'm so conflict averse and, uh, you know, scared of this relational thing. Why? It doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to get shot. I'm not going to. And and I I do feel pretty confident overall. Why do I do that? And can I correct that and feel safe? Doesn't mean that I will again, be a psychopath and not care. I may be disappointed. I'm going to realize that, but how can it not derail me and take me down that path? Use the word in, uh, re-encode again, that that's the opportunity that we're talking about here in your book, to look at these areas where we have these, I was going to say irrational fears. Is that fair? Or is that minimizing? Sure. These, I think
1: that for the purpose of conversation, that works. Uh, yeah.
0: Unreasonable uh, unreasonable reactions uh, mm-hmm. that, that don't have to be, again, it, it, somebody else could be here, doesn't phase them. It phases you. Why? We're not minimizing. You're not minimizing that it phases you, but you're saying, okay, but it doesn't have to. You can use the word re-encode is that right you can yeah change. yeah that's the big hope here yeah
1: it's it's not only is it the big hope it's it's a big eventuality like it can happen mm. if because the nervous system kind of responds like your muscles like you you know what to do to strengthen your muscles you know what to do to strengthen your body right, right? so we can change the brain we know this very clearly and what i would say to you is like And I think a lot of people have this. A lot of people are are conflict averse. It's so common, right? Let's go back to the story of the combat veteran that I shared. The thing that the combat veteran and every kind of trauma survivor who has PTSD has to contend with, and I think we all contend with this in varying degrees, is it's not so much the thing, either the thing that happened or the thing that could happen. It's the Feeling in my body, I have a sense that if I really let this fear, fear kind of take it, go in my body, or let the stress go in my body, or yep. the inadequacy, it's gonna kill me. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we use these words like "it's a little bit uncomfortable" or "like it will make you," you know, "it'll make you like a little." No, it's like it's abject existential terror. Let's call it what it is. Yep. Okay. So a lot of times when I'm dealing with with people, they'll say they'll feel a little bit silly, but they're like, I think my head might explode. I think I might have a heart attack. I think I'm gonna throw up. I think I'm gonna pass out. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So great, that's how your body feels, cool, got it. Then you start to say, well, like, do you think that heads actually explode? No, have you ever heard of anyone anywhere? Like these aren't rhetorical. Like, have you ever heard of anyone like dropping dead? in a situation no okay do you think that so it's like they start to be able to like because what happens is you have two brains you have an emotional brain and a thinking brain and again we kind of talked about this at the beginning the healthiest brain is the integrated brain the brain that is thinking in line with how they're feeling Hmm. when we start to get very emotionally activated i sometimes will tell people to think of their brain as having two runners a thinking runner and an emotional runner. Well, if my emotional runner takes off and my thinking runner is left in the dust, my emotional runner is now driving the show. And uh, that's not a pretty scene for most of us, right? And so then we have our discharge. And then by that time, the thinking runner catches up and it's like, oh my God, you just made a mess of of your life, right? So we have to be able to say, let me think powerfully about my emotion is is the way that I'm explaining this. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I I was questioning myself as you said that, because I would say, okay, I've been the emotionally unintelligent person and I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking, but I'm, I'm kind of second guessing that, that no, even that was an emotional response. It's, it's running from the emotions. It's trying to shut them down. And so is it, can I, 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 am feeling like I can't fairly say that, oh, I was just the thinker. You say no, that's, I, I was shutting down the emotion. I'm still being run by it. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. So I think a lot of times when we get activated, yeah. the, the emotional runner takes off and leaves the thinking runner in the dust. So the question then becomes, well, like, how do I become a more, more emotionally powerful? And part of the reason I wrote Energy Rising was to give people a lot of very practical exercises to work with their nervous system. So one thing you can do is let's let's use this example of hard conversations. okay? so say you're like, I want to become emotionally powerful and you can pick anything. I want to become more creative. I want to become more expressed. I want to become more confident. Okay, you think about how you get physically stronger. If I want to get physically stronger, I go to the gym and I lift more weight. Yeah. No one is ever confused about this. People might not want to do it, but that is a whole different issue than being confused about how I get physically stronger. Right. Now, on the days when I'm willing to do it, I go and today I lift 20 pounds. Yesterday, I lift five. When I'm doing it, I'm quite literally going to shake. My muscles going to shake. My heart's going to race. I might sweat. Now, never in the history of going to the gym has someone freaked out and panicked and called an ambulance and fled from the gym because their like bicep was shaking, okay? The exact same process. It's a very strong analog to emotional power. So what I would tell you to do, and I call this exercise, hold your emotional shake. Hmm. I would say, give me a list. Let's make a list of five things that are from least to most emotionally taxing for you vis-a-vis other people. So maybe a thing would be like a one would be writing your wife a text message about something she said that hurt your feelings. Mm -hmm. Maybe a three would be, I don't know, writing somebody a letter. And maybe a five would be having that difficult conversation with John that you've been avoiding. I actually encourage people to do this on a scale one through 10. And I'm just going to use one through five for the purposes of efficiency in our conversation. Now, like most things, like if I am trying to get stronger and I I wouldn't lift one pound and I also wouldn't go all the way up to a 10, I wouldn't try to lift 75 pounds because why? that's just not really how you get stronger. You got to be strategic. So I tell people to start somewhere between a, a six, seven, or eight. So you kind of get the sense of how much emotional resistance that's going to bring in my body. And then you just do the damn thing. Now, here's the key though. And this is why I think conversations like these are so powerful and transformative for people most of the time because we've never had powerful conversations like this if i go to talk let's say i'm going to actually go talk to john and i, I, I my stomach starts to hurt my heart my, my throat starts to kind of close up i'm getting a little bit dizzy i think oh my god this is an existential threat this is pure danger abort mission abort mission and then i don't have the conversation hmm. no it's just the opposite it's these physiologic cues are the very evidence that you're getting stronger. Now, some people will say to me, well, what if I have to run from a bear? Like, should I like, how many times in your, this always tickles me, how many times in your life have you had to run from a bear? Right, right. Okay, the problems in your life almost never, almost never are one and done. The problems in our life, if we're very powerful about it, are always chronic. We're having the same fight for the 1700th time. We're annoyed by John at work. We're thinking about leaving our job. We've been thinking about leaving our job for six months. You see? So there's a chronicity here. No one's dying in the situation. So I need to be able to say, am I willing to come into a new situation? Why? Not because the situation matters so that I can feel different emotional energy in my body so that I can become more powerful.
0: And, and as you say powerful, I do keep internally. Um, I mean, I appreciate your use of the word power. You talked earlier about that being confidence. I'm also feeling like peace. I want emotional peace. That is a power, such a power to me. And uh, Julia, I mean, you, you talk about, or you, you said in the book, I think I pulled this out right off the quote, emotions are the final judge of your experiences. And as you've talked, I didn't really have this as a key point before coming into this. I mean, I've been studying the book, but I'm on safety and I'm thinking I'm going to do an, I want to do an audit. Where do I not feel safe? Even amongst the, you have a list of emotions in the like negative emotions in there. And I, I've talked many times about Brene Brown's latest book, Atlas of the Heart. And she has, you know, 87 emotions to go along there. Cause as I look at those, some of them don't bother me. I mean, I get it and I can, I can feel that. I want to know that it's, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a big deal. And then some of them, I have something, something's awry with me. Something's off built, off base. Something has, has really, I feel an insecurity. I don't feel safe there. How can I go in and re-encode what i feel what is that say you know why do i what what where do i feel unsafe and why and that feels like again the hope of understanding your message getting in and folks they need to study the book and get energy rising and Really go through. Can I this say?
1: Can I say one thing about why? Um, I want to tell you why I titled the book "Energy Rising." Mm-hmm. I thought more about naming. I thought more about naming this book "Energy Rising" than I thought about naming my own children. <laughs> Fair. Fair. So, yeah. So the reason I chose the name "Energy Rising" is your your physiology is brilliantly designed. Okay, your body and your brain know what to do with waste. You eat food. You let it go. You take in oxygen, you put out carbon dioxide. Every 27 days, your skin cells go. There's a foreign invader in your immune system. Your immune system knows how to eject it. There seems to be something singularly different about how we process emotional junk. Mm -hmm. So basically, we have a situation arise in our life and we have a bad feeling about it. We have to have a difficult conversation. We have to do something that makes us a little bit anxious. And what do we do? We shove it down. What do we do? We avoid it. We deny it. We suppress it. So we just keep shoving down and shoving down and shoving down. You do that for enough time, five years, Mm -hmm. 10 years, 70 years. The result of that is you are emotionally constipated. Mm -hmm. Your emotional pipes are totally plugged. And then what happens? Somebody cuts you off at the stop sign. You can't respond with intelligence and power. You are pissed off from now until next Tuesday. In order to become more emotionally powerful, we have to allow our bodies to do what they are designed to do. Your nervous system is packing 150 million years of evolutionary power. It is literally designed to feel hard feelings. Just let the energy move. And when you understand how to work with emotional energy, when you understand how to move emotional energy from your body, you become empowered and you become free.
0: Yeah. We, you're back on, you know, self-betrayal and self-division. And Julia, again, I have done so much of that thinking I was being valiant, thinking I was doing the right thing. And that has been such a trajectory. And it led, you said earlier, I used the word, use the word burnout. And, you know, I think, yeah, for me, it was bitterness, but yeah, I did that. I burned out on things because I was self-betraying. And I'll tell you, I mean, you know, this this is, this is your profession. It's the longer you go, the harder it is to reprogram. And I'm grateful I get to talk about this stuff with my kids now so that they can start that ahead of time. And even to say, you did not see a good example of this with your father. Hey, Julia, thank you so much. Uh, folks, thank you for joining us on this journey to elevate your experience and improve the way you show up for others. This is Dr. Julia deganji Again, the book, and again, if you're watching the video, it's over my shoulder here. Energy Rising, the neuroscience of leading with emotional power. It's one to study. This isn't one you're going to listen to and go off and just have it nailed. I'm going to be studying this for a long while. I've got a couple more shows. We're going to keep rounding out this topic, Uh, but you can find her at dr. Julia DeGanji, D I G A N G I dot com. But again, the book, Energy Rising, you can find that anywhere. And if you, is there anywhere else that they can tune in with you, or do I cover the good bases there?
1: If you want to talk about emotions, I am on this planet to talk about it. You can find me at all the socials. So Instagram at Dr. Julia Gange, LinkedIn, Facebook, and I'd love to connect.
0: Okay, folks. And thank you for being here. If you appreciate this podcast and want to share it with others, please rate the show on Spotify, leave a review and a rating on Apple and mention this specific show so that we know what you got out of it. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can see the whole episode here that I've done with Julia on YouTube as well. And find me on social media also at kevinmiller.co. And if you want to learn to master your own drive, check out my book, What Drives You? And until next time, stay driven.